Well, we've been working through uh, this series. Uh, historically, um, the idea of the seven deadly sins is something which has developed down through the centuries. And uh, although I don't see it as anything particularly uh, specially, uniquely uh, powerful in the, in the Word of God, it just seems a helpful way of us introducing this, this whole issue of the problem of the human race. And we do have a real problem, don't we? Um, I guess I'm just about old enough now to remember the the days of the last uh, major recession, 1979 through to about uh, 1982, 1983, that period of time. And uh, it was just as I was looking to uh, come out of school and try to get a job, and it was really difficult. Uh, And I remember that there was concerns at that point about issues of, of lawlessness and, you know, what's happening in this world that we live in. And it was still at that time, it was just about... Uh, still being talked about that education was the answer to all of our problems and that if we could educate more people, if we could improve the level of education, that basically we could educate ourselves out of the problem. If you like, that was still being being talked and thought about at, if you like, the middle level. So schools were still teaching it, colleges were still teaching it. But I guess even at that point, uh, as I read a little bit more now and understand a little bit more now, even then it was beginning to be questioned by the, the, the elite, people who were really thinking about the issues of the problems that we face today. Because the reality is, um, as I understand it, we we now have the highest percentage of people going to university. Uh, The general level of educational capability is increasing, and yet, on a worldwide basis, on a local basis, I don't know about you, I don't know whether you would share this view, but I think most people would feel we are no better Uh, At best, we have stayed still, although many people would think we are even worse than we were in the past. What is it? What is the problem that we face? In 2002, Nicky Gerrard was writing in The Observer. Uh, Nicky Gerrard is a journalist, a a Guardian journalist, and was writing about uh, the death, just the recent death of Myra Hindley. Those of you who don't know Myra Hindley, uh, she was a, the notorious uh, uh, partner in, uh, of the Moors murderers, the, the woman who was uh, responsible for the death and torture and death of, of little ones. And she died in 2002. And Hindley, uh, Nikki uh, Gerard was reflecting on her death, reflecting on this, this problem of evil this problem of something uh, bad inside. And, and she came to this conclusion. I found these, these two sentences really profound because it just t- overturns all of what we had been hoping for down through the years. She said this, evil is a noun, something like dirt inside you. But most of but for most of us, evil is more like a verb, something you do, something you are. 
Now, for those of you who are like me, not particularly good on nouns, verbs, adverbs, and all of the other combination of strange words which make up our language, what she is basically saying is this. Evil is a describing word of what we are. Whereas mostly we think evil is the things we do. Or in other words, she said, maybe the things we do are the outpouring, the explosions of what we really are. I found that from somebody who has no truck whatsoever with the Christian faith, no, no concerns whatsoever about the Bible's message. Astounding that she would say and actually write and admit that the problem is not the things that we do and therefore education, educating us not to do those things is, is, is proven to have failed. Actually, the problem is what we are. We're going to look at a story this afternoon which leads us into one of the, one of the seven, seven deadly sins as it's been described, and that is envy. Here we've got this story of... Um, we'll follow it through if we can get it up on the screen. We've got this story of uh, an older king called Saul and a younger man called David. And... Uh, this chapter 18 of the book of Samuel is straight after a really famous event, which I'm sure you all know, where uh, David ki kills Goliath. Goliath is the great giant, the opposer of God's people, and David, this young shepherd boy, goes uh, down to find his brothers who were in the army on the battlefront. He goes down to take them some provisions. When he gets down there, he finds that uh, his brothers are basically standing back with all of the rest of, of the army of God's people, terrified because of this huge giant, uh, physically huge man, who is, is threatening uh, menaces for anybody who tries to challenge him. And King, uh, this young uh, King Saul is in the tent. You, know, the, you get that picture of the, the tent at the back of all of the army where the general is and and he doesn't get too near the front because there's plenty of people in front of him and the, and the problem. And uh, Saul is at the back there in the tent and, and David goes in to see him and says, look, I'll go and fight. And uh, Saul says, well, take my armor. And uh, you've got this little lad who's a shepherd boy and the picture that the, uh, the Bible portrays is really quite a, almost a humorous picture. Uh, of David trying on this armor, and it was you can imagine this man's armor on this younger, this youth. It was just huge, and he was trying to kind of waddle around. And he said, "Look, I just can't. I can't fight like this." So he, he goes and fights Goliath with his sling and stone, knocks him over, and beheads him with his own sword, and triumphs on behalf of God's people. David comes back, and uh, we now realize that there is a greater claim that is being made for David. Uh, it seems as though David has now moved from this unknown person, this shepherd boy, into the very center of the royal court. Because through this event, he becomes um, the closest of friends with Saul's son, Jonathan. 
And we live in a cynical world where we read uh, uh, that the closeness between David and Jonathan was, is misconstrued. And just the reality is, um, it's just the kind of relationship that loads of people want to have. I, I want to be really close with somebody. I want that kind of kindred spirit relationship with somebody. And Jonathan and David were what you would call kindred spirits. You, do you have a friend? Maybe you don't. Um, some of us are uh, privileged, I guess, to have friends that are so close that we don't even have to talk about a particular subject. It just intuitively, you know where you are, you know where they are, you know what they're thinking, you can just kind of get it. I guess Jonathan and David were like that. And that moved David into the very closest of Saul's um, royal court. Uh, and, and the success of David in military terms, resulted in Saul placing David in charge of uh, fighting men. And so we read at the back end of uh, verse 5, David went out and was successful wherever Saul sent him, so that Saul set him over the men of war. And this was good in the sight of all the people and all also in the sight of Saul's servants. So we've got this picture where David's success against Goliath has resulted in him on this trajectory of recognition and profile and responsibility, where he now is leading the armies. He's become a, a general on behalf of Saul, and all of the people look at David, and they are thankful, and they appreciate that David is the right person in the right place. He's just the right man for the job. Everywhere he goes, it seems as though he is successful, now, as, just as a little bit of an aside, I guess for some of you, you might be thinking, this is exactly why I have problems with the Bible. Because it's, it's all about, you know, military power and fighting and war and all of that kind of thing. We've mentioned it on many occasions, but I just think it's really necessary to mention it again. God is willing to speak to the world in the language that the world understands at the time in its development. God is willing to do that doesn't mean that he condones the actions. It means that God is willing to come down into the grime of this world and deal with this world as the world understands it at that point in time. What did the world understand at that point in time? It understood geographical power, military power, and it was believed by all of the nations that if you were successful, it was because your God behind you was successful. The story of the Old Testament is about a minuscule uh, nation which in human terms had no right whatsoever to success becoming successful. Uh, and because of that the world were looking on and seeing this is unique what's going on. It's because of God behind these people. That was if you like God willing at that point in time to proclaim to this world power and dominion and authority in extraordinary terms in a way that was amazing for people at that time. And so David is the one who is triumphant and is declaring the God of the Bible, the one true living God, in the language that the people understood by a tiny nation becoming militarily and geographically successful. So David becomes that. And then the crisis comes Everything is going along quite nicely, isn't it? Everything is going along successfully. Every time he goes out, the success. Every time he goes out, he declares God 
by his military success so that the nations, we find this hard to understand, but the nations would look on and say, wow, how have they done that? How did they defeat Goliath? As an example, the, the spontaneous, immediate response would have been in the world because their God is behind them. We don't think like that, do we? We don't consider it in that way. That's how the ancient world worked. So God, as David goes out, the world looks on and thinks their God is powerful. Then the problem comes. David's on his way back home in verse 6. Uh, and they were coming home when David returned from striking down the Philistine. The women came out. Of all the cities of Israel... It's almost as though the writer is wanting to paint this picture with just everywhere. You know, sometimes you use that picture. It, just every city they came out. There was, it was, do you remember, you've seen pictures of the, the ticker tape parades at, at the end of the war in London and the likes. It was probably a similar kind of idea that's wanting to be portrayed. And there was singing and there was dancing and they were meeting who? King Saul. They were meeting King Saul in his success, and they were meeting him with tambourines, with songs of joy, with musical instruments, and the women sang to one another as they celebrated. Improvised singing, or a chant that was quickly made up that people caught on and they were all singing it. Saul has struck down his thousands, and David his ten thousands. And at that moment, the problem emerges in Saul. See how it pans out. And Saul was very angry. And this saying displeased him. He said, they have ascribed to David ten thousands, and to me they have ascribed thousands and what more can he have but the kingdom and Saul kept an eye on David from that day on I just isn't the Bible just brilliant at putting into a few words exactly the kind of emotional responses that we all know we feel at times look at what they said about him Look at what they didn't say about me. And because they've already knocked me down a little bit, there's just one inevitable result, which is that I'm going to lose everything. That's the way Saul's mind worked. Envy had entered into, well no, envy had started to bubble up in his heart. It had always been that. But now it begins to kind of work its way, starts to run through every thought. We get the idea, don't we, that from then on, he's just watching him. Every day, every move he makes, every conversation he has. Have you been in that situation? Have you been in the kind of situation where you, you, somebody says something and you feel immediately as if they've said that about that other person and not about me. And then that other person, maybe in work, maybe in the family, 
from then on, all that you do is you watch them. And then you see them having a coffee at the coffee machine with somebody. Where does your mind go? Your mind goes to all of the worst places that it could possibly be. Oh, they've said that. And now they're speaking to that person. I tell you what, they're after my job. I can just see it. I can see that that's what's happening. You have no grounds, maybe, to think. Maybe you do have grounds, I don't know. But maybe you've just got that. I know that David, Saul, had no grounds whatsoever to think about this with David. We're going to see why he had no grounds. But we're also going to see that what goes on inside spills out. Or rather, in this case, rather than spills out, it explodes out. We've got this picture. Um, In fact, there's a tragic verse Verse 10, the next day a harmful spirit from God rushed upon Saul and he raved within his house while David was playing the lyre as he did day by day. It's as though in that there is a willingness from God to not protect Saul anymore. And it's as though we just want to make The writer wants to make, and God wants to make, the biggest contrast possible. David is playing his lyre, you know, this quiet, reflective, peaceful, contemplative music. And the other extreme is going on with Saul. While peace reigns in David's mind, violence reigns in Saul's mind. And he is raving against David. And it just gets so bad that he picks up a spear, fascinating contrast, because the last person who had a spear against David was Goliath. And now the person who's got a spear against David is his own king. He picks up a spear and he hurls it at David and he wants to pin him to the wall. He wants to kill him. What has gone on inside has exploded out. It's all become visible. I can imagine for the courtiers at that moment in time, explosion. Maybe the closest, maybe the closest courtiers would have known Saul well enough to see it bubbling away, bubbling away, bubbling away. Are you the kind of person who you can relate to this? Are you the kind of person where it bubbles and bubbles And then all of a sudden it just rushes out and everything from inside becomes visible on the outside. And he tries to kill David by pinning him to the wall. Now I said earlier that there was no grounds whatsoever for for Saul to fear David. I think there's evidence here. Because he evaded him, not once, but twice. You see, David's commitment to serving his king was such that at the first occasion where he dodges the spear, he was willing to hang in there and to continue to play and to continue to serve the king to the point where he was uh, attempted uh, murder on a second occasion. 
The contrast that is made here is that David is the one who is faithful and consistent and Saul is the one who just, it just explodes out and envy that has been going on in his heart is seen by everybody. Envy. It's a dirty, horrible, awful thing to see, isn't it? I want to look at envy in three ways. I want to look at envy and me. I want to look at envy and Jesus. And I want to look at Jesus, me, and envy. (laughs) So there's the, it's a triangle. It's what I'm like, what Jesus says, and how Jesus intervenes in my life to deal with this issue. The first is envy. Let's define it. I'm really thankful I was chatting to somebody last night and they said, well, what about jealousy? (laughs) Envy, jealousy, how does that work out? Aren't they the same thing? So I'm really thankful for that because it helped me to get it right. What is the difference between jealousy and envy? Jealousy is a claim that I make on something which is rightfully mine. So God can be justifiably and rightfully jealous. He's jealous for our love. Envy is a demand for something which is not mine. There's a difference. Jealousy is a right claim on something that is mine. Envy is a wrong claim on something that is not mine. Now I know that, and we all say very often, don't we, that jealousy can go too far and yeah, I accept that, but jealousy in some sense is rooted in something which is right. Envy is always rooted in something which is wrong. And so it is absolutely right for me to uh, be jealous uh, of the love of my wife. Or to put it another way, it is absolutely right uh, for a, a woman to be jealous of her husband's love. And it is absolutely wrong for a woman or a man to be jealous of the love of another husband or wife. Do you see the difference? One is rooted in something which is good. One is rooted in something which is bad. One is always rooted in something. Envy is always rooted in something which by right is not mine. And that's the problem that Saul has. You see, the reality is... As we look at this story unfolding, in the providence of God, the reality is God has given great success to David. Great success to David. But what happens is when Saul looks on at that great success, he doesn't see success, he sees something that strips himself of who he thinks he is. And he says, I'm not that good, I need that to be who I think I need to be. Doesn't envy always say that? Doesn't it envy always say it is all about me and if I just had that, I would be a better me? It's all about self. It's all about how I would feel if only I had. It is the very root of our human problem. This constant state of dissatisfaction. Don't we live like that? Don't we live with just a constant state of dissatisfaction? My life would be better if only I had this other thing. This other relationship. 
this other job, this other place to live. If only it worked out with that friend or whatever it might be. We always want something more. We always are expecting that my life would be better if I just had. Now the problem is that when we look outside of ourselves and we look on this horizontal world that we live in and we look at all of the things out there, that all the things that could just make us better, we've blown it. Because all that we're ever looking at is things that can never satisfy us. And we're rooting our hopes and we are envious of things that would never deliver anyway. And it has always been our problem. Right at the very beginning, the Bible says, here's your problem. Let me describe it. Let me allow it to flood out and what's, what's taken root in your heart to be seen by everyone, everybody when Satan says to, to Eve, wouldn't, wouldn't it be great if you ate that fruit and you became like God? I want to be like God. I'm not satisfied with receiving the blessings from God. I want to be like God. And that is precisely how we continue to live. Dissatisfaction. We look for perfection, don't we? And then we want it. I want that perfect relationship just perfect in fact how many relationships are struggling and striving precisely because we look at the way the relationship is and we think it's not what it could be it's not perfect it's not great as it as we would hope it to be it's not worked out the way I'd hoped I want that perfect job I want that perfect pair of legs maybe that's where you are I want that that's body that I inhabit is not the body that I wanted to inhabit I would be so much happier if I had a different body my body image my self identity is just torn to shreds because I don't look like that image in the magazine and therefore I will do everything in my power to have that image. And I will destroy myself in seeking that image. But isn't that what we continue to do in every other situation? We destroy ourselves. Here's Saul. Look, isn't it easier from the outside to look in and see how, how horrible it is? David's playing a peaceful tune. And Saul picks up a, a spear and hurtles it across the room to try to pin him to the wall. And we can all look back and say, that is horrible. But the reality is that Saul will have found some little comfort. He'll have ha found a little bit of comfort in the act of trying to pin him to the wall. A temporary moment of release and relief in trying to get it. The pursuit of the, of the perfection. The perfection for Saul would be if David was out the way. 
And then for a moment he just feels as if maybe he's on the way of that success as he picks up the spear. And he destroys himself by the very actions that he thinks are going to bring him hope. What did Jesus have to say about this? Jesus said this. Did you need to understand this? The eye is the lamp of the body. The eye is the lamp of the body. That sounds a bit strange, doesn't it? In other words, what he's saying is this. We need lamps. You know, if... Quite honestly, this is a great room to describe it because we have no windows. If we turned off all of the lamps in here, we would be in the darkness. If we turned the lamps off outside, it would be dark. We need light. We need light to be able to see. And Jesus says, the eye is the lamp of the body. In other words, what we allow in through our eyes illuminates our body. And that sounds a bit strange until we see how... He unpacks this description, he says, so if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. In other words, he says, if you have so understood how to use your eyes, how to look out on the things that are out there, so that what you see floods light in, you've got healthy eyes and you'll have a healthy body. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? In other words, if the only light is black, how black is it? Imagine down at the bottom of a mine, turn the light on, you turn the light on, it's black light. It's black. (laughs) That's what he's saying now, Saul. Let's take it to Saul because then we can apply it to us. Saul. When you look out and you see the women dancing and you hear the songs singing about the success of David, what do you see? Do you see God's blessing? No. You don't see God's blessing, do you? You look out and what you see is blackness. What you see is everything that is going to threaten you. Everything that is going to destroy you. You look out and you you are not trained. You are not skilled in being able to see God's blessing in the situation that you are in now. You cannot see that that they're singing songs that you've been successful against thousands. You've... They're singing songs that David has been successful against tens of thousands. And you can't see that both of those are God's blessing. God's blessing. Your eye is unhealthy. You're looking out and you're seeing the bad. He looks out. He sees the dancing women. He hears the songs. And he misses God's blessing through David. Just stop. Have a look around on the floor. Because I now want to move this particular, this actually, this illustration isn't going to work for everybody. But bear with me, because you'll get it. You'll get it. Because I want to now work. We've looked at what envy is, me and envy, what I'm like. We've said this is what Jesus says. 
Now let's see how Jesus and me comes together. Just look around on the floor. Nice pair of shoes next to you. Are they better than yours? That really doesn't work if it's a woman sitting next to a man, does it? <laughs> nice pair of shoes. Does it make you feel... wish I had a pair of shoes like that. Or does it make you think, wow, shoes. Aren't I blessed to have a pair? That's a simple illustration, isn't it? 75% of the world's population will not be wearing shoes today. They will be too poor even to have a pair of shoes on. And yet what we do is we look around and we see something which is slightly better than that which I have. And what do we do? We miss the blessing of God at this moment in time. At this point in time, I'm blessed by God. Now, I chose shoes because it's such a flippant description. But the reality is this. What we see in little things is if you like, it's the, it's the iris of the camera, just the tiny little hole, giving us a little bit of light on what we are really like, deep down. We miss God's blessing, again and again and again and again. And rather than seeing the blessing of God, we are filled with envy for what we do not have. We become self-centered rather than seeing God's blessing poured out on us in so many situations. That is the problem that we had. Saul found comfort in flinging the spear through the air. We find comfort in looking at the pair of shoes and saying, yeah, I know, but the dress doesn't go, does it? You know, we just knock it a little bit just to make ourselves feel that little bit better. There's the reality. It's the little window in a flippant way to say, that is our problem. And when it is rooted that deeply in what we are, we have a massive issue, don't we? Because I don't know about you, but when I come to terms with the fact that a tiny little thing, like, okay, it's not a pair of shoes for me, but something else, something minor, something trivial which is a little window into what I am really like, I come to realize this. I cannot defeat this by, by just trying to stop thinking like that. I can't defeat it. It's too big for me. This problem of envy is too huge. I have no hope. It's a giant, and I can't defeat it. I need to step back and say, I'm frightened of this one. And what is the answer from the previous chapter where the, the giant stands there as something which we cannot defeat? The answer is that we need a saviour to come in and win the battle for us. And that is precisely what the Christian faith is all about. 
That is precisely for us today who are grappling with the fact that my problem is that very issue that I look on with envy and then I find it exploding out all over the place. Those of you who follow, uh, are keen to follow Jesus and you're fighting and battling with this, how do you defeat it? How, is, how do you resolve this problem? Well, firstly, you, you need to understand that the, the Bible says that this problem is resolved in you. It is resolved in you. Because Jesus came into this world. And he looked out on this world in every single situation. And, and his eyes were shining light into his heart. His eyes were clear, they were healthy. He looked at every situation and he did not see darkness. He saw light. He saw God's, his father's providence at every turn of the way. He saw them coming through the garden with blazing torches ready to take him prisoner, to take him to the cross. He looked on at that, and as he saw it, he didn't think, I wish I could be Peter and run away. He, did, he wasn't envious of Peter's opportunity to get away from this. He looked at that and he saw God's blessing at this moment in time. How bad is that? How bad a situation is it is when you know that your accusers are coming through the garden towards you with blazing torches. This is the moment and he sees that and he sees God's providence. And in doing that, he lives perfect righteousness. He lives a life without envy. Now listen to this. That is what Jesus is like. He is somebody who never, never wants had a spark of envy rustling away in his heart which allowed uh, a flame to fan up which exploded out in actions which displayed the envy that was going on. He never displayed that. Now listen what the Bible says. It says this, we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, we know, I know, I know that I have this problem of envy. We all fall short of the glory of God. We all shall fall short of the demands and the standards that God makes. And we all shall fall short of the glory of God. What is the glory of God? Jesus in this world who was living without it. We all fall short of that. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. In other words, this is what happens. We come into relationship with Jesus and all of my envy is replaced by his perfect, righteous life. That's Jesus, me, and envy. How is it dealt with? It's as though... Well, the Bible, that w the Bible uses the word that we are justified by his grace. Justified. We are declared. That's a, that's a legal word, justified. It's a legal word. We are declared righteous. Declared. So God says, you know what you like. I know what you like. 
but I will declare you righteous in Jesus. It's as though you, in that moment where you're looking out at the bleakest of situations and you know that your heart is envious of another person who isn't having to go through this, it's as though God says, I don't see you like that. I see you like Jesus. I see you like Jesus. That is astounding, isn't it? But that is the beginning. When he declares us righteous in Jesus, we take on that. You know when he has given us that? When when he becomes my righteousness, don't I want to be so close to him every moment of the day? Don't you want to be close to somebody like that? Wouldn't it be amazing if you had a friend like that who, who gave you absolutely everything that you ever needed for peace in your life? That's the kind of friend that you have in Jesus. If we had a friend like that in this world, one that we could see and touch, we'd want to be with them all the time. Because being like people with people like that would change us. We would be transformed spending time with somebody like that. Faith says this, spend time with Jesus. Because little by little, the envy will be chipped away. It's not going to disappear in this world. But if you spend time with Jesus, I mean if you in faith commit yourself, if I in faith commit myself day by day, to just immersing myself in a relationship with him. Faith says, if envy is your biggest problem, you need to understand two things. One, God doesn't see it as your biggest problem anymore because of Jesus. And two, that biggest problem of envy that you know you have If you commit yourself to spending time with Jesus day by day, it will get smaller and smaller and smaller. It will get less. It won't be solved. But one of the ways that you realize that you're beginning to deal with it is you begin to hate it. Begin to actually hate the problem that you are. You know, Saul loved the idea that he could throw a spear at David. If you carry on through the chapter, it's just a downward spiral. It just gets worse and worse. And he immerses himself more and more in hatred of David, but he finds peace in it. And if if he'd spent time being close to God, he would start to hate the fact that he is that kind of person. And that's the beginning of the change. We said right at the beginning that we are beginning to come to terms with our biggest problem is the reality of who we are. Jesus, breaking into this world, becoming our saviour and our friend is the only hope for us to resolve that situation.